You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who is your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Yeah, I mean, dig into the real history of this country and the fact that it was built on blood. You can't be neutral on a moving train, 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 train. And that was an excerpt of the song Writings on Disobedience from Vinnie Paz. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics in the U.S. and beyond. You can follow on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. Find a link there to send me a message. You'll also find some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have a story written by Christian Blackman. That is K-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. And this is published by the Boycott Times, which you can find at boycottx.org. I've had plenty of, quote, friends suggest that black trans sisters getting killed is a gay issue and not a black one. When I highlight black queer folks who have been murdered, I get accused of trying to hijack the black liberation movement with, quote, that gay shit. Meanwhile, black trans women are experiencing communal violence at alarming rates and are seven times more likely to experience physical violence when interfacing with the police than those who are cisgender. But we aren't supposed to ask for justice because our sexuality makes us less worthy. We aren't supposed to lift their names because their gender identity made them less human. No. Fuck that. I am black. I am a woman. I am a black woman who is same-gender loving. Let me attempt for a moment to speak to these intersections as they pertain to the plight of black liberation in America. Black folks that identify within the LGBTQI plus umbrella are often an anomaly within the movement or protest world and society at large. We frequently find ourselves defending our sexuality or gender identity in heterosexual and cis black spaces while defending our blackness in white queer spaces. We are the bastard children among demographics where we both exist and identify. In spite of the fact that black queer folks have always existed and that many of our beloved black freedom fighters from the past and present are queer. There is still much disdain, tension, and hate when it comes to the inclusion of black queer folks in the movement of black liberation. This outright implies that a non-heterosexual identity or cisgender alignment somehow revokes one's blackness. It assumes protection under the LGBTQI plus umbrella as if that somehow protects us from the communal and state-sanctioned violence acted upon brothers and sisters of color. 
It suggests sexuality or gender expression somehow grants one the liberties of an Ellen or a Caitlyn Jenner or whatever white gay man's name you want to enter here. The LGBTQI plus community and the fight for gay rights are predominantly white-led and, like many other social justice movements, ignores or omits the con contributions of black folks and people of color. For one to exist and walk in the truth of being same-gender-loving, trans, or non-binary is a beautiful thing. With that, however, comes the possibility of scrutiny, prejudice, ostracization, and hate that often leads to violence. While white queer folks experience injustice and bigotry, they also have the option to lean into their whiteness and the privilege that comes with it. The hatred queer black and people of color experience is rooted in both anti-queer and anti-black ideologies. Perhaps I can hide my gay. However, I cannot hide my skin. Many queer white folks want black folks and people of color to engage in kumbaya moments that champion the LGBTQI plus movement, while simultaneously ignoring and silencing the oppression that specifically impacts those same queer black folks and queer people of color. They want us to align with the gay rights movement they hijacked while they play oppression Olympics and use cute catchphrases like, quote, gay is the new black. They push for our participation while many of them are in fact racist, pro-police, and anti-black. So we navigate away from this and attempt to lean into a community of folks that look like us. Black folk. Beautiful black folk that continue to be resilient in spaces and places that often attempt to make us believe otherwise. When a brother gets cut down too soon by the pigs, I don't inquire about his lifestyle choices. I don't ask what kind of man or what kind of father he was. I just show up. When black folks are experiencing injustice from systemic racism, I don't alter how I do the work because they don't look like me or love like me. Why? Because these are black folks. These are our people. So I ask what part of this exclusion of queer and trans black folks is pro-black? What part of this ignoring and separation is getting us to freedom? I don't want to hear shit about religion. I don't want to hear shit about the gay agenda and these are all excuses and scapegoats to mask one's bigotry and hate. When I wake up, I first identify as black. I lead with my blackness. When I speak about liberation and freedom for us, there is no asterisk. There is no exclusion. We say until black people get free, then none of us are free. But you can't agree with that and exclude certain demographics of black folks. That isn't how this works. And until some of you grasp that, you will forever be on the side of the oppressor. If we're pushing to abolish and transform systems of oppression, then we must include all black folks in the fight. If you are pushing for black folks to truly be liberated, then you must not exclude any black folks because of how they walk in this world. 
If you are not doing that, then you are not doing this work. And we don't believe you. We don't need you. For those that do, let's get free. Such a powerful piece with such a important statement. If you believe that no one is free until everyone is free, then you can't exclude anyone from that group. Next up is a long piece. It's going to take the balance of the episode, in fact, to to cover. It, it certainly intersects with that initial piece. Uh, this piece is called Technologies for Liberation Towards Abolitionist Futures. And it is part of what we call here on You Can't Be Neutral, a people's future. Once again, this piece is called Technologies for Liberation Toward Abolitionist Futures. It is all put together by Estrella Lesbian Foundation for Justice. You can find this piece at estreafoundation.org. That's A-S-T-R-A-E-A Foundation. Executive Summary. Since the founding of the United States, there has been a dovetailing of technology and criminalization targeted at communities of color. Historically, the state used technology as a tool to repress movement-building efforts and amplify the systems of oppression and violence that communities of color in the U.S. experience. Today's surveillance technologies and practices have roots in older forms of policing, incarceration, and colonial control dating back to the inception of the U.S. nation-state. The logic behind predictive policing software derives from slave patrols, lantern laws, and and stop-and-frisk. Facial recognition algorithms can be traced back to the eugenics movement. Biometric data monitoring was first introduced with colonization. In the late 20th and 21st centuries, Technological developments have accelerated the U.S. government's monitoring of communities of color, and specifically, progressive and radical Black, Indigenous, and QT2SBIPOC movements. And that stands for Queer, Trans, Two-Spirit, Black, Indigenous, People of Color. By relying on racist tropes and fear, the state has been able to continue these actions through invoking white slavery myths and rationalized mass surveillance laws, such as the Patriot Act, by invoking fears of, quote, foreign attacks on domestic soil. These historical connections make it plain that the state's racist use of technology 
for the purposes of criminalization is not new and is cemented into the foundation of this country. What is new, however, is the rate and scale at which the development of surveillance technology is propelling mass criminalization in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Mass surveillance has resulted in the hyper-policing of entire communities by law enforcement and government agencies. Mass incarceration in the U.S. emerged within a context where surveillance served as a racializing mechanism of white supremacist statecraft. Surveillance practices established a way of coding enslaved African bodies as criminal and therefore subject to constant oversight, from which the term surveillance derives. Confinement and punishment in the form of slave patrols and biometric tracking. Safety and security are often conflated within state narratives to justify the use of these mass surveillance and other carceral technologies on the public. As we see with police surveillance of organizers, these narratives frame state surveillance technologies as, quote, smarter methods to protect public safety and national security from a perceived threat. The racial biases of the creators are deeply embedded within the technologies themselves. Mass criminalization upholds and bolsters this network of practices with emergent surveillance technologies that have expanded the reach of the carceral state beyond physical confinement. In its current manifestation, mass incarceration is understood to be a set of policies that has caused an enormous rise in the number of black and brown people in prisons and immigration detention centers. In 2020, more than 2 million people are currently incarcerated due to this system. The collaboration of state and corporate actors has pushed mass criminalization into overdrive. The long-standing secretive state-based tactics used to track and surveil, surveil migrant communities, protesters, and sex workers serve as an example of the ongoing threats that communities face. The current U.S. administration's increased attacks on open-source technologies that movement organizations rely on for safety intensifies the threat of state-based violence. Quote, Surveillance capitalism propels and extends the structure of mass criminalization of communities of color in the United States. For example, in recent months, as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic, Governments have begun using contact tracing technology, the use of personal location data on cell phones, to track the virus. Without safeguards, this technology can be repurposed to further surveil and repress organizers, particularly at protests. Internet shutdowns in the Global South in response to COVID-19 are further examples of the ways in which governments have co-opted technology to repress citizens exacerbating inequalities in accessing timely health and other critical information. Quote, We are trying to think about how to confront mass criminalization, recognizing there are 2 million people in cages, but 7 million more under some kind of surveillance. There are other systems through which people are criminalized, the child welfare and immigration systems. So many ways that criminalization funnels people into those cages 
but also creates cages outside of prisons. Frontline organizers are responding to these attacks with resilience and vision, creating intersectional strategies that shift power into the hands of the people who are historically denied it. They advocate for the investment in community-based solutions over carceral ones, while simultaneously fighting to demilitarize and defund the police, and move resources to meet community needs. The massive mobilization in support of Black Lives in 2020 and calls to defund police are built upon years of Black-led organizing efforts to redefine public safety and accountability as needing to be led by communities rather than law enforcement agencies. For example, the recent corporate moratorium of facial recognition technologies being sold to police by companies like IBM, Amazon, and Microsoft illustrates a powerful movement win that is a direct result of organizing efforts. Drawing from historical lessons and legacies of resistance, many organizers use an abolitionist approach which strives to eliminate policing in prisons and transform the social conditions that lead to and feed oppressive, violent systems of policing, punishment, and incarceration. The movement organizations highlighted in this report are reshaping the narrative around what it means to keep their communities safe and who gets to define what safety looks like. They are expanding the definitions of technology and helping communities control and safeguard their personal data from the systems built to exploit it. Since this data is often used by the state to incriminate and bring harm to individuals' bodies, such work is not merely valuable, but central to resistance and freedom. However, there is a dearth of long-term funding to support the creation and development of movement-led infrastructure and to partner with these communities to design, test, and evaluate new technologies. Shifting power to communities to imagine abolitionist narratives of safety is critical. Calls for sustainable and long-term funding for political education, trauma-informed resources, movement-based research, safer communications, movement technologies, and support for a free and open web are needed now more than ever. This work requires help from forward-thinking funders who understand the need to couple support for innovation with support for the grassroots organizing that creates it. This report, Technologies for Liberation Toward Abolitionist Futures, lifts up the power of movement building and the ways in which organizers are innovating to create safe technologies and systems for the people they serve, centering QT2SBIPOC communities. This research is based on in-depth interviews with movement organizers, researchers, policy advocates, and technologists. These and other data were collaboratively analyzed during a three-day participatory analysis convening held in San Juan, Puerto Rico in 2019. Through these and other conversations, we identified key findings about some of the ways in which movements in the United States and Puerto Rico combat technologies in the service of criminalization and how they are building transformative futures. 
We share our recommendations for funders prepared to support communities proactively transforming and reimagining new futures outside of criminalization. And I'm going to skip over the key findings here in the introduction because I am going to read through the findings in the report. And then I'm going to circle back at the end and cover the recommendations for funders. Technology and criminalization. The carceral state deploys technologies to control, police, surveil, and limit the flow of money and power to communities. The dovetailing of technology and criminalization is not new. It is something communities of color have experienced since the founding of the U.S. This has included methods from the lantern surveillance laws of the 18th century to COINTELPRO in the 1960s. From the Federal Bureau of Investigation's ongoing Black Identity Extremist designation and its past surveillance of protests at Standing Rock to its use of facial recognition software to identify activists and protesters. Communities of color are increasingly hyper-policed with these technologies and entangled within the criminal legal system, perpetuating the racist history of policing and prisons in the United States. These systems of surveillance range from government databases, police body cameras, private security cameras, social media targeted ads, and consumer profiles to predictive policing and beyond. Most are often deployed without community knowledge, consent, or accessible understanding of the interactions between the state and private companies. Worse, safety and security are often conflated within state narratives to justify the use of these surveillance and other carceral technologies on the public. Government agencies and private tech companies invest significant resources into developing surveillance technology to broaden the web of criminalization, while organizers use what digital tools and other technology they have at their disposal to combat this violence in movement-building spaces. As a result of these investments, the state and its co-conspirators simultaneously erode communities' access to safer working tools, for example through legislation like FOSTA, Earn It, and the controversies related to USAGM, OTF, and make them more vulnerable to often lethal policing and surveillance. Quote, We're seeing this conflation of safety and security that has caused a great deal of harm. Law enforcement and city government, they tout increasing safety for communities, and almost always they use the security mindset to do that. We're trying to drive home the narrative that surveillance is not safety. Safety is knowing who your neighbors are. Safety is a resource community center. Safety is thriving public education. Safety is making sure that your neighbors have water and food. Those are things that are safe. Dominant pro-surveillance narratives peddle surveillance technology as, quote, smarter method of society control and to, quote, protect public safety and national security. 
Under this pretext, the state has historically shaped the discourse around what criminal behavior looks like, and thus justified the need for heightened surveillance and other discriminatory law enforcement practices. Policies such as Jim Crow, broken window policing, and California's Three Strikes Law serve as examples of how a population is vilified to justify extreme levels of surveillance and policing. As the state increasingly uses technological means to expand the scale and scope of its carceral apparatus, we have witnessed a shift in public narrative to justify government agencies' use of technology to criminalize communities of color and other populations seen as inferior to white, capitalist, patriarchal, and imperial conquests. By stoking fear in primarily white, suburban, upper-class communities of certain populations, the state has been able to gain approval of pro-surveillance interventions that impact everyone. Rhetorical arguments calling for, quote, law and order have underscored this justification. It is vitally important that QT2SBIPOC communities have the necessary resources to counter narratives of militaristic security. A narrative shift is required, a shift that centers communities' definitions of safety and supports their fight against violent surveillance and criminalization practices deployed in the name of safety. Automating Injustice AI, facial recognition, predictive policing, and pretrial risk assessments. AI and decision-making algorithms are becoming a common feature of tech-driven policing and detention systems. AI technologies such as facial recognition software, predictive policing, and pretrial risk assessment algorithms perpetuate criminalization through racial and gender bias and have become what joy Bulamwini of the Algorithmic Justice League calls the coded gaze. These algorithms are biased because these types of automated systems are designed within an already discriminatory system shaped by the white gaze as programmers and designers encode their judgments into technical systems. What many call algorithmic bias may be more appropriately described as algorithmic violence because of how it brutally targets black and brown communities. Quote, You think about how facial recognition software is biased in so many ways. It misgenders black women in a way that's very much connected to the masculinization of black women in this country for generations. Thinking about what that means for queer, non-binary, and trans people. Do the builders of AI value queerness? For me, queerness is antithetical to AI because it falls outside of any data sets that try to define how you are going to move in this world. The makers of these technologies are getting more and more support. What does this mean for LGBTQI people of color and how these technologies are used against us? It worries me a lot. One of the most dangerous forms of community-level algorithmic violence is, quote, predictive policing, a range of data-driven surveillance practices that turn entire neighborhoods into vectors of criminal probability. 
This technology involves the use of software to determine who is considered criminal and where crime is, quote, likely to happen. According to a study of 13 jurisdictions that currently use predictive policing systems, the data on which these systems are built is deeply flawed due to, quote, systemic data manipulation, falsifying police reports, unlawful use of force, planted evidence, and unconstitutional searches. However, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition says the problem is not simply dirty data. It's the fact that predictive policing AI is fundamentally designed to police black and brown bodies, communities, and land. The coded gaze of predictive policing is an extension of historical systems of racist policing under white supremacy and settler colonialism. The system is not broken. It is working exactly as intended, now with modern technologies to facilitate and automate these processes. Over the last decade in Los Angeles, the LAPD hired Predpol, a predictive policing vendor, to create a statistical model for predicting crime in geographic zones with low-income communities of color, which it labeled, quote, hotspots. The LAPD combined this with a mapping system, laser, to create chronic offender bulletins, or COBs, which identify people for targeted surveillance. COBs are then analyzed by Palantir, a data mining search platform that cross-references information from multiple databases and automated license plate readers, ALPRs. Palantir assigns a score to persons on the COB list according to gang affiliation, parole or probation status, arrests, and other so-called, quote, quality police contact. Both Predpol and Palantir operate in other cities where police departments have significant records of racist brutality and misconduct. Contrary to promoting community safety, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition argues that, quote, a feedback loop is created where an increasingly disproportionate amount of police resources are allocated to historically hyper-policed communities. Quote, I view the march of technology rather than policies being a threat. Pretrial risk assessment instruments are a particularly stark example of the threat of technology on marginalized communities. There's been a huge movement to end cash bail around the country, but is being substituted by these automated instruments that will gauge people's risk, whether they're a flight risk or a public safety risk. In California, SB 10 recently passed, which would end cash bail and also bring in this new era of risk assessment. We believe this has a very real potential of hardening a lot of the racial disparities that we're seeing. It won't actually lead to decarceration. It might actually do the opposite. The criminal legal system's growing reliance on pretrial risk assessment algorithms deepens carceral control and racist biases over people's lives. The Correctional Offender Management Profiling for Alternative Sanctions, COMPASS, 
an algorithmic system for predicting recidivism rates among pretrial defendants, has erroneously predicted high risk for black defendants and low risk for white defendants. Much like electronic monitoring discussed below, pretrial risk assessment algorithms are presented as an alternative to traditional detention policies like cash bail. Yet they threaten to further entrench people's entanglement in the criminal legal system due to the racial biases and decades of racist criminal history data embedded within these tools. Between the continuous development of surveillance technologies and the expansive, often unmitigated carceral reach of the state, it is paramount to connect historical legacies of criminalization with contemporary inequalities regarding mass incarceration. Electronic Monitoring All the World a Prison Surveillance technology is extending the reach of the carceral state beyond physical prisons by normalizing what Media Justice, MJ, calls e-carceration. The use of wearable electronic monitors such as ankle monitors that restrict the freedom of movement and agency of individuals on parole and probation, and convince the public that the government should be permitted to track people accused of and convicted of crimes. The sharp rise in the number of people on parole and probation has accompanied mass incarceration. Approximately 4.5 million people in the U.S. are under some form of correctional supervision outside of formal jails and prisons. More and more systems, including immigration and juvenile detention, are using electronic monitoring devices. GPS tracking data from electronic monitors can be incorporated into other agencies' databases, casting an even wider net of surveillance over a person's everyday movements. Business is complicit in the explosive development of location surveillance phone apps that may ultimately replace ankle technology. For example, over the last year, BI, the world's largest electronic monitoring company, has doubled the number of people under ICE supervision with SmartLink, a social media electronic monitoring app. Governmental agencies and the industries producing electronic monitoring devices have responded to critics of ankle monitoring by going mobile. Quote, This technology is being put out there as a tool of the future to restructure the criminal legal system. We're going to have a lot more people under a whole range of technological surveillance and carceral technological control. It's not so widespread in usage right now that it couldn't be stopped, but if we don't do something about it, we risk setting up another system of incarceration. While reform advocates tout electronic monitors as an alternative to incarceration, carceral technologies actually widen state surveillance and punitive control over formerly incarcerated people's lives. They effectively create digital prisons that further mass criminalization. The majority of people under e-carceration are confined to their houses and are not allowed to leave without a court order or permission from a parole officer. This type of virtual, often solitary confinement 
greatly affects the mental and physical health of QT2SBIPOC people. A black trans woman living in Chicago shared her story of incarceration with Media Justice, reporting that while she was under electronic supervision, she was denied permission to leave her house to buy food and fill prescriptions for HIV medications she requires daily. In emergency situations, people are forced to choose between risking going back to prison for an authorized movement or, for example, taking a sick child to the hospital. Incarceration also creates barriers to employment because the restriction on movement prevents people from going to job interviews or working in environments like concrete buildings that may interfere with the monitor's signal. Electronic monitoring further harms communities already vulnerable to mass incarceration, contributing to financial and other material dependence on the families and social networks of those on parole and probation. Quote, There's a surveillance ecosystem that's emerging that we need to be very, very mindful of in terms of the ways in which some of these companies are capitalizing off our movements to end bail. As a trade-off, people are agreeing to much higher surveillance with digital cages that can find people to a particular neighborhood, that can find them in terms of what times of day they can be out, etc. That would become more of the norm rather than the exception. When you think about people who go in for a ticket or who don't pay a fine, where the previous answer was three days in jail, it is now perhaps a month with an ankle monitor and consistent surveillance. This is a huge trade-off. It's the new redlining, frankly. Electronic monitors spread carceral logics into other spaces of society, including the surveillance of workers in factories and of public areas. This expansion of surveillance extends mass criminalization's reach to low-wage workers. Technology companies that develop surveillance technology already deploy these products on their own workforce. Major companies like Amazon and Fitbit have begun using surveillance technology that tracks the motions of its warehouse workers, who are disproportionately black, migrant, and people of color in low-wage positions. In outdoor spaces, monitoring devices facilitate e-gentrification and create de facto segregation by restricting those who are forced to wear them from entering certain areas. As a researcher and educator interviewed noted, these exclusion zones apply to people who face criminalization in particular ways, such as those on the sex offender registry who are banned from going within a certain perimeter of public parks. That electronic monitors come programmed with exclusion zones sets a dangerous precedent for other devices that people use daily. This is becoming more apparent with the fear of stingray cell simulators and contact tracing of COVID-19 being used to track down organizers at the 2020 mobilizations in support of Black Lives. Quote, since most people have some kind of GPS device anyway, it doesn't seem like a huge leap to put some kind of controlling technology in those devices where there are exclusion and inclusion zones. 
You can only go where the technology permits you to go during certain hours of the day. That's one of the fears I have about how this technology can control people's movements in a much more systematic way than what we see at the moment. Surveillance economies and the rise of the quote, stalker state. Understanding the hidden ways in which data flows from our personal and private devices to state-based agencies helps us understand the extent to which our communities are being policed and surveilled. The Stop LAP Spying Coalition defines the stalker state as a network of overlapping data sharing systems between social media corporations, private security firms, public service institutions, military departments, federal agencies, and local law enforcement. It enables data sharing among state and local police, intelligence agencies, and private companies, while also fueling profit-driven tech development as positive progress. A prime example of the stalker state's reach and impact on a public narrative about safety is a political debate surrounding the militarization of the U.S. border, what so-called progressive politicians espouse as the, quote, smart border, a surveillance network of AI, drones, cameras, and infrared sensors as a more humane alternative to the Trump administration's draconian border wall project. Tech companies are complicit in developing facial recognition technologies. For example, companies like Thorn and Marnius Analytics have programs that scrape data from escort ads without consent to use in the design of new facial recognition technologies targeting sex workers. Under the pretext of, quote, anti-human trafficking initiatives, companies are enlisting lower-wage workers to surveil sex workers and share the data with law enforcement. As one interviewee shared, quote, this suite of AI tools, as well as anti-human trafficking trainings at Uber and Marriott on how to, quote, spot human trafficking survivors, encourage some of the lowest paid employees of these companies to snitch on sex workers, creating a dynamic where workers are snitching on workers. Sometimes these reports at Marriott and Uber lead to calling of ICE. Once you're in this system, the state can surveil you using these technologies, harming workers all around. U.S. government agencies and local law enforcement are capturing and weaponizing personal and community-level data to increase surveillance and repression of movements. As more data is captured and shared, it is becoming a potent weapon the state wields to disrupt movements. This is happening within the larger international context of U.S. military wars and intergovernmental and interagency data sharing in militarized zones, such as the U.S.-Mexico border. These practices are then applied by police at the local level in cities across the U.S. During protests and direct actions, police use surveillance devices like stingrays to disrupt activist communications, steal people's data from their cell phones, and track their physical locations. At least 75 police agencies in 27 states use these devices to capture personally identifying information which is then shared with other agencies to profile and monitor 
organizers. These technologies have especially targeted the Black Lives Matter BLM movement. During the Eric Garner protests in New York, the NYPD infiltrated BLM and gained access to organizers' text messages. In 2017, an FBI intelligence assessment surfaced a new designation of security threat, the so-called Black Identity Extremist, BIE. In 2020, police used facial recognition technology and the surveillance of social media to identify and arrest activists who were at protests in support of black lives. For example, using Clearview AI, activists in New York City and Miami were arrested after participating in the summer protests. Quote, We really have to understand that some of these technologies and data practices are basically created for war zones or for imperialist intervention models. They are brought to a militarized border and start to seep through into the rest of the U.S. and police overall. Battle for privacy-first policies and technologies includes protecting access to technologies like end-to-end encryption and protecting and protection from digital attacks. Encryption technology is an important safeguard against state surveillance and is under threat. Recent U.S. legislative efforts, for example, the Earn It Act, the Laid Act, and the PACT Act, coupled with subsequent defunding of open-source encrypted technologies, show the U.S. government's transparent desire to access communities' private communications and do away with access to technological tools employed for privacy, like end-to-end encryption, E2E. If signed into law, it will have a global impact on civilian access to encrypted technologies. The loss of this protection would mean that the state would be able to monitor all communications from any device, anywhere. This would imperil the digital security, not only of social movements, but of all. The end of end-to-end encryption would create a backdoor for law enforcement and also make it easier for civilians with malicious intent, such as abusers, people, people spreading revenge porn, etc., to access previously secure communications. The government is also moving towards targeted malware attacks known as the Network Investigative Technique, NIT, and Dragnet malware to capture data from large groups via a single warrant. Additionally, the government is funding tech companies to design malware products that destroy built-in security mechanisms, which millions of people, including organizers, depend upon. QT2SBIPOC organizers report that the state is using these methods to break into their cell phones and personal devices to try to gain access to their data. Social media intelligence, SOCMINT companies, have found a lucrative niche in contracting with federal and state agencies to spy on organizers. Private firm ZeroFox monitored the social media accounts and geolocation of Black Lives Matter organizers during the Freddie Gray protests in Baltimore, referring to organizers as, quote, threat actors in intelligence reports to law enforcement. Similarly, Geofedia, 
obtained user data from Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to monitor activists during the Michael Brown protest in Ferguson. Movement organizations often rely on social media to communicate with members and promote their campaigns and events, which makes them vulnerable to surveillance, infiltration, and data poaching. They acknowledge that a major contradiction they face in using mainstream platforms is what some call the network effect. That is, as organizers reach more and more people on these platforms, they also become more dependent on corporate infrastructure for their organizing work. This in turn reinforces the status of mainstream platforms as the default venue for all communications. Organizers interviewed for this research even report that police and federal agents have used fake social media accounts to pose as activists and try to gain access to personal and organizational information. The ways that private companies collaborate with state actors is often opaque, but the consequences of these collaborations are very real. Targeting Migrant and Native Communities at the Border Customs and Border Protection's deployment of surveillance technologies, which it uses to monitor and detain migrants, impacts migrants and native communities whose land is divided by the border. The U.S.-Mexico border crisis spotlights the interlinked struggles between native land sovereignty and migrant justice. Border surveillance perpetuates colonial dynamics, offering modern means to maintain historical oppression. The Tohono O'odham Nation, located in southern Arizona, northern Sonora, has been under, quote, wide area persistent surveillance since 2006, when CBP began building surveillance towers, flying drones, and using cameras and motion sensors within Tohono O'odham territories. Tribal members say this impedes their relationship with their land and sacred sites. Meanwhile, these technologies further harm the lives of people migrating across the border and erode civil rights protections within the 100-mile inland border zone where most people live in the United States. Quote, It's been really, really dangerous because ICE agents now have more resources from the federal government for surveillance. They have more time on their hands to be able to do more things. You have agents doing the in-person surveillance, so following people, stalking people's homes, threatening people's family members. But then you also have the digital surveillance, where they're able to map out family trees and find addresses to conduct their raids based on information from private data brokers. We're really seeing it on all levels. Third-party agreements between government agencies and data brokering companies facilitate the interlinking of digital and physical threats. Border agents now commonly ask people for their social media accounts upon entering the U.S., and there are reports of sex workers being denied access at border crossings because of social media and escort ads. Migrant justice advocates warn that immigration authorities monitor queer and trans asylum seekers' posts on platforms like Facebook and use their social media content to argue against their asylum cases. The linkage of digital and physical surveillance through third-party data sharing has enabled ICE to conduct targeted raids because 
based on people's addresses, social media posts, and location data. In response to concerns about ICE raids in Puerto Rico, some organizers reported having to close their social media accounts, avoid posting about their activism, or cover their faces during protests to avoid being deported. The increasing collaboration between the U.S. government and private tech companies is fueling a system where corporations are profiting from surveillance products. This is a clear example of how surveillance capitalism works in the service of criminalization. The Department of Homeland Security, DHS, CBP, and ICE are spending billions of taxpayer dollars annually on contracts with tech companies to target immigrants of color. Nowhere is this more apparent than with the escalating arrests, detentions, and deportations that comprise the U.S. administration's ongoing war against migrant communities. This war, which also includes the geographical and biometric surveillance of immigrants and their communities, represents what has been called crimigration, the intersections of criminalization and immigration. As with other forms of criminalization, the use of technology to consolidate power and capital is well documented within the policing and militarization of the U.S. borders and immigration system. The growing technical interconnectedness between federal agencies and local police departments is eroding protections granted by sanctuary cities that have historically limited the use of federal immigration detainers for a person of undocumented status in custody. Due to interagency data sharing and police use of social media, ICE agents are surveilling and arresting migrants in churches, courtrooms, hospitals, and other public spaces with greater frequency. This restricts the movement of people of undocumented status and prevents them from accessing much-needed health, legal, and social services for fear of being detained and deported. Surveillance Economies and the Criminalization of Migration Palantir, for example, produces software for ICE agents to profile and arrest families of undocumented status, playing a direct role in taking migrant children away from their parents and caging them in privately run detention facilities. Tech companies are ramping up surveillance along the border through an initiative known as the, quote, Smart Border, for which Congress approved $100 million budget in 2019. For example, Elbit Systems, a subsidiary of Israel's largest military company, signed a $26 million contract with CBP to build a network of massive surveillance towers with night vision cameras, thermal sensors, and ground-sweeping radar. There are currently more than 400 such towers along the U.S.-Mexico border. Anderreal Industries is working with U.S. border agents to test new surveillance systems called Lattice, which combines AI, cameras, drones, and LIDAR, and operates miles beyond the border. By networking databases and search tools between CBP, ICE, and U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, the Continuous Immigration Vetting CIV program which collates information from immigration benefit applications throughout the entire application period, casts a wider net over those without citizenship status.
Amazon Web Services, AWS, provides cloud hosting to the federal agencies and local police departments who share information with DHS. DHS stores data from its automated biometric identification system, IDENT, a repository of 230 million unique identities based on fingerprint, iris, and facial records on the AWS cloud. Cloud hosting also supports ICE's integrated case management, ICM system, created by Palantir. Not only does ICM collect, store, and analyze massive volumes of personally identifiable information, it also creates the ability to share data across systems at all levels of government. Over 9,000 ICE agents have access to an automated license plate reader, ALPR, database run by Vigilant Solutions, a company which ICE has a $6.1 million contract with. The ALPR database allows ICE to follow migrants across 5 billion points of location data. Surveillance and control of mainstream social media platform users, data, and content. Social media companies are letting police, federal agencies, and third-party tech companies surveil QT2S BIPOC communities and organizers via their platforms. Access to mainstream social media platforms is often severely limited for black, trans, and sex worker communities because of the ways in which these identities are policed and restricted by algorithms that are inherently racist, transphobic, and whorephobic. For example, as a result of content moderation practices, sex workers report difficulty finding each other on social media. Black femmes and people who are coded as sex workers are banned from Instagram at a higher rate. Real name policies prevent sex workers and trans folks from using platforms. Community members are forced to decide if they will risk use of and reliance on specific platforms which includes facing the risk of removal by the platform moderators who may delete accounts without reason. These removals not only disrupt economic opportunities and community connection, they also make community building, organizing, and mutual aid more difficult. Quote, we see corporations like Facebook acting as arms of surveillance and providing all kinds of data or opportunities for law enforcement and corporations to capture data and use it in punitive ways. The way in which surveillance impacts people who I call the criminalized population, black, brown, LGBTQIA, native, people of color broadly, for those people, it's not about somebody snooping in your email or eavesdropping on your phone calls. It's really about blocking you from employment opportunities, blocking you from education, blocking you from housing, blocking you from travel. It's a whole range of ways in which it directly impacts your life when all this data is weaponized to be used against you. Platform moderation, or the policing of a platform's content, is a critical site where the criminalization of sex work intersects with threats to the Internet autonomy. In 2018, two congressional bills were signed into law. The Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, FOSTA, 
and the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act, SESTA. Together known as FOSTA-SESTA, they make platforms liable for sex work-related content and further criminalize sex workers. FOSTA-SESTA was the first substantive amendment to Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act, which protected internet platforms from liability for the content users produce and post to their platforms. Many technology experts argue that Section 230 allowed for the growth of the free and open web that we use today. But FOSTA-SESTA overrides Section 230's Safe Harbor Clause by increasing platform liability, in effect, imposing broad internet censorship and a chilling effect. Quote, the passage of SESTA and FOSTA has shut down spaces for people to do work digitally. It's impacted people very negatively, here in D.C. specifically. The people who have been most impacted are trans women of color, black trans women because now more and more people have to do street work, which is more dangerous in a lot of ways, including because police are out here. It's easier for people to be arrested and go into the criminal legal system. FOSTA-SESTA further polices sex work online and exacerbates existing platform policies and practices that censor online sex work and suppress digital organizing efforts such as shadow banning, content moderation, and deplatforming. This means that they do not have the same access to the tools non-sex working folks use to build business and to organize. Like many entrepreneurial businesses, Many sex workers rely on an online presence, marketing, and creating their own online content to conduct business. And FOSTA-SESTA threatens to eliminate this capacity. FOSTA-SESTA also harms the freedom of movement and economic opportunity for migrant sex workers. With the Department of Homeland Security and the FBI raiding adult services ad platforms and seizing servers containing user IDs and personal data, Migrant sex workers, especially those who are of undocumented status, are unable to find work and live in fear that the government will use this data to track, arrest, and deport them. Quote, I was very shadow banned, so I wasn't showing up in searches. We did a lot of organizing around this hashtag, let us survive. Looking at the statistics for this hashtag, though the numbers are there, it does not show up as trending. FOSTA-SESTA limits the resources that movement organizers need to combat harmful legislation, as many organizers fund their unpaid labor with money earned from sex work. In Hacking Hustling's new report on content moderation in sex worker and activist communities in the wake of the 2020 mobilizations in support of Black Lives, they found that individuals who engaged in both sex work and activism work experienced significantly more negative effects of platform policing than individuals who did either just sex work or just activism work. This suggests that there is a compounding effect where platforms more harshly police censor and deplatform activists who support their organizing work through sex work. Movement Strategy, Response, and Resistance 
Embodying power and resilience, organizers and communities employ new and old strategies to identify and resist criminalization while dreaming up new worlds free from state violence and control. The movement responses shared in this report are built out of longings for freedom from the state's carceral apparatus and from colonial and contemporary restrictions on identity, geographical movement, and connection to land, and economic exploitation. They are built out of longing for communal liberty, resilience, and sovereignty. Organizers are using a myriad of strategies that range from organizing to policy and advocacy, to political education, to somatics, to technology developments, and beyond. These strategies demand decarceration and decriminalization, divestment from surveillance economies, harm reduction and platform moderation, exposing the extent of carceral systems and technologies. They also include building concrete community structures driven by the needs, safety, and direct engagement of communities. Acknowledging the destructive principles of the prison industrial complex and its reliance on punishment and surveillance technologies, organizers forge intersectional analyses that center abolition, healing justice, and community-based interventions in their work. These adaptations represent movement technologies that point towards a future beyond policing, creatively circumventing systems of criminalization and extractivist practices. Abolition is the vision. Critical resistance defines abolition as the goal and practice of ending the prison industrial complex, which the organization describes as, quote, the overlapping interests of government and industry that use surveillance, policing, and imprisonment as solutions to economic, social, and political problems. According to critical resistance, abolition is not simply about eliminating physical prisons, but about transforming the social conditions of oppression that give rise to violent systems of policing and incarceration. Abolition is the vision. Abolition examines the root causes of systemic and interpersonal violence and how dominant narratives of policing have become internalized in our collective thinking. Abolition is an iterative practice that not only seeks to eliminate physical prisons, but also strives to transform the social conditions that lead to and feed oppressive violent systems of policing, punishment, and incarceration. Abolition is the antithesis of surveillance culture. What distinguishes abolition as a strategy is that it does not assume that the use of carceral technologies and mass criminalization are inevitable. Drawing from historical lessons and legacies of resistance, an abolitionist approach calls for, quote, a deep rethinking of our reliance on policing and surveillance to resolve all conflict, violence, and harms within our community and society. It requires confronting our own sense of safety and the responsibilities of public safety, said a researcher and policy analyst interviewed for this research. If surveillance is, as one organizer put it, about constant control of the body, then movements for abolition ask, 
How do we make structures of oppression and control irrelevant? Organizations are creating successful abolitionist campaigns to fight tech and criminalization. In 2019, the Stop LAPD Spying Coalition, SLSC, won a hard-fought campaign to eradicate chronic offender bulletins, COBs, which the LAPD had used to track so-called persons of interest in low-income communities of color. SLSC organizes on multiple fronts to abolish all surveillance tools and programs. Toward this end, the coalition has developed what it calls, quote, abolitionist technologies, creative interventions using art, media, and performance to galvanize public support against the state's deployment and funding of surveillance technology. In its campaign to end LAPD's drone program, SLSC disrupted a police commission meeting using political theater to draw connections between the violence that drones inflict on migrant children in the U.S. and children in occupied Palestine. SLSC calls for redirecting funding for surveillance programs into community resources instead. Quote, We urgently need more investments in public housing, education, health centers, youth development programs, healthy food, and steady employment factors that promote real public safety. What distinguishes abolition as a strategy is that it does not assume that the use of carceral technologies and mass criminalization are inevitable. Instead, abolition begins with the following questions. What resources were not available to communities that led to relying on the state for a sense of safety? What resources do communities need to build and sustain interdependent networks of care that would make surveillance culture obsolete? Ultimately, Ending the criminalization of communities of color in the U.S. requires dismantling the state's architecture of surveillance, policing, and criminalization, and the systems upon which it depends. Decarceration and Decriminalization Decarceration and decriminalization are key goals in the abolitionist vision. A successful example is a nationwide Black Mama's Bailouts campaign, led by Song and the National Bailout Collective. Black Mama's Bailout seeks to free black mothers and caregivers so they can be with their loved ones for Mother's Day. In 2019, the campaign raised over $1 million and bailed out 123 black mothers and caregivers in 37 cities. As a decarceral strategy, Black Mama's Bailouts offers a transformative model of investment in community support by directing funds not only for bail, but also for child care, sustainable housing, transportation, and legal services for black mothers and caregivers. In doing so, the campaign recognizes that community support and services are necessary to keep people safe and well. It also celebrates black trans mothers and caregivers who care for trans and gender nonconforming youth, along with black queer families who defy heteronormative systems. Along with decarceration, broad-scale decriminalization is needed to stop the expansion of mass criminalization enabled by surveillance technologies. In Atlanta, Solutions Not Punishment, SNAPCO, a black trans-led collaborative, 
observed that the use of mounted cameras with enhanced surveillance capability on police vehicles led to more arrests of black residents. In response, SNAPCO implemented a pre-arrest diversion initiative with the city so that those who were frequently stopped by police, particularly sex workers and people with neurodivergence, could avoid arrest and detention and access supportive services instead. A community organizer and advocate interviewed in 2019 reported that since 2017, 130 arrests have been diverted. This initiative was part of a broader campaign to decriminalize sex work across the state of Georgia. SNAPCO also partnered with Women on the Rise, a sister organization led by formerly incarcerated women, to close down the Atlanta City Detention Center. They are currently working to repurpose the former jail into a community space. SNAP for Freedom School, an organizer training program guided by a black trans futurist framework for practical abolition, organized a successful campaign to change a city ordinance that made marijuana possession a non-arrestable offense. These strategic interventions have led to a larger push for decriminalization as other municipalities have followed SNAPCO's model. Resistance to profiling and racist AI has long a long history leading to present-day battles against its use. In 2020, for example, partly in response to Black Lives Matter's protests, the ACLU filed a case seeking to both ban the use of facial recognition technology by law enforcement and put in place a moratorium on the sale of facial recognition technologies to police forces by mainstream corporations. Divesting from Surveillance Economies Migrant justice organizations are calling for broad divestment from the surveillance economy that escalates arrests, detentions, and deportations in migrant communities. Via the campaign No Tech for ICE, part of the larger Abolish ICE movement, organizations demand that tech corporations end their contracts with Immigration and Customs Enforcement and stop building products that enable federal agencies to stalk and detain asylum seekers, refugees, and people of undocumented status. It also urges investors to divest from companies like Palantir that specialize in surveillance and data sharing that have direct hand in separating migrant families at the border. Quote, We've been doing immigration enforcement work for a while, and technology is popping up in it and really challenging the rules of the game. That means we have to be thinking about how we change culture, industry, and economy in the U.S., around deportations, in addition to just thinking of the federal policy that is coming down from D.C. While many are skeptical about whether or not tech companies will be held accountable, spotlighting collaborations between private firms and ICE is a critical strategy for exposing the roles that tech companies play in a larger ecosystem. In 2018, Mejente, a Latinx justice organization, Working at the intersection of immigration and tech, released Who's Behind ICE, a report exposing the financial dealings between the U.S. government and the tech industry. Quote, This campaign is about exposing tech and data companies, getting people to understand how these companies are building the backbone of the deportation machine, 
and what it looks like to imagine possible strategies and tactics that we can engage with. Mehente is organizing a geographically diverse cross-sector network of migrant communities, tech workers, students, and social justice organizers to explore divestment strategies and intervene at the point of sale for surveillance products. For example, in 2019, migrant justice activists championed California State Bill, the Sanctuary State Contracting and Investment Act, which would have barred local and state agencies from contracting with companies that provide data brokering services and data processing tools to ICE and CBP. Organizers hoped that AB 1332's intervention model of creating economic consequences for cooperating with federal immigration authorities will shift the culture in Silicon Valley and push companies to adopt more ethical standards for conducting business. Fighting Digital Prisons Organizers are challenging electronic monitoring as an alternative to institutional imprisonment. One example of these efforts is Media Justice's No Digital Prisons campaign. As political support mounts for decarceration, the reversal of decades of mass imprisonment in the U.S., Media Justice launched the No Digital Prisons campaign to challenge the notion that electronic monitoring is a more humane replacement for traditional detention. Warning that electronic monitoring could become the new technological mass incarceration. MJ points out that the number of people shackled to electronic monitors has doubled in the past decade, and that more systems, including immigration and juvenile detention, are using these devices. Media justice is shifting the narrative to show that the experience of confinement and surveillance under digital prisons is a direct extension of physical incarceration. As part of No Digital Prisons, Media Justice initiated the Challenging Ecarceration Project to develop a set of guidelines for advocates and policymakers seeking to defend the rights of people under electronic supervision. These guidelines include provisions like credit for time served under surveillance, since electronic monitoring is a type of state detention. They also include restrictions on the kind of personal data that can be collected by electronic monitors and how that data is shared. The guidelines also call for minimally invasive technology with prohibitions on implants, biometric tracking, audio and video recording, and inflicting pain as punishment. Over 50 racial justice, criminal justice, and civil rights organizations have endorsed the guidelines. Quote, I spent a year on an electronic monitor, and I don't think electronic monitoring is an alternative to incarceration. I think it is another form of incarceration. The capacity of these devices, like cell phones, is going to greatly increase. Not only do they become devices of carceral control, they become devices of state surveillance. The data from them gets blended in with other databases. There's very little accountability for how the technology is used or what happens to the data that's gathered by electronic monitoring. Research and policy by us, for us. Securing work via digital platforms is a harm reduction strategy for many sex workers. Online work is often safer than street-based work. 
documenting the direct and negative impacts of FOSTA-SESTA on the safety, livelihoods, and activism of sex workers. Organizers and allies illustrate how movement technologies and research are integral tools in the fight for social justice. While aimed at sex workers, FOSTA-SESTA represents a pernicious type of legislation that has chilling implications for the broader ecosystem of digital organizing. Hacking slash hustling is a sex worker-led collective working at the intersection of social justice and technology, intentionally bridging gaps between the siloed communities of tech development, legal advocacy, academia, and grassroots movement organizing around the myriad ways that sex work is mediated by technology, including FOSTA-SESTA and the Earn It Act. In partnership with academic institutions and tech organizations, the collective organizes in spaces where sex workers normally aren't invited in order to ensure that the voices of people who experience the direct impacts of criminalization and loss of online spaces are at the center of all policy conversations. They conduct community-based participatory research with fellow workers in the industry to learn how FOSTA-SESTA is harming economic self-determination and how sex workers are responding. According to their new study, approximately 33% of online sex workers experience being kicked off a payment platform, with many reporting that the platform also sees their funds, ranging from $300 to $1,000 and 81% of online sex workers report that they face difficulties advertising their services online after FOSTA-SESTA. Quote, A sex worker losing their account can mean they're not able to pay rent, support kids, or afford medicine or health care, and may also mean being disconnected from organizing efforts with friends who would help them, explained a sex worker activist. Many workers in the sex trades are experiencing economic instability and increasingly precarious working conditions as tech companies, fearful of federal and state prosecution, deplatform them. Major digital payment platforms like PayPal and Patreon, whose original models benefited from sex workers being among the first users of the technology, are now blocking them from collecting payments. Through their reclamation of community-based research methods and resourcing sex workers to share their lived experiences and expertise, groups like Hacking Hustling remain at the forefront of movements by creating knowledge by and for sex workers impacted by surveillance. Hacking Hustling also provides peer-led digital security and digital literacy trainings to strengthen the knowledge and security of their community. Community-Centered Technologies Community-Centered Technology is a powerful countervailing force in the fight against criminalization, equipping communities to use technology to resist surveillance culture. Grounded in self-determination, organizers and movement technologists view their technology as a tool for liberation. They aim to shift the balance of power by actively supporting communities to have, quote, access to the power to develop, control, and own technology. Quote, How we approach the creation and use of technology has to be part of our vision of change. If we can create that, 
the new technology can actually unleash a bunch of power and not have it just be a way for corporations to monopolize and control people's information. Organizers are using principles of design justice to re-envision who shapes technology, what it does, and who has access to it in the first place. Organizers identified design justice as a theory and practice that centers engagement of communities in the design and development of technologies that impact them. Design justice is also, quote, concerned with how the design of objects and systems influences the distribution of risks, harms, and benefits among various groups of people. As a framework, design justice considers who gets to do design, who we design for or with, what values do we encode in designed objects and systems. As a participatory model, design justice ensures that community members have a direct say over the goals, methods, and outcomes of creating and using technology infrastructure and tools. This holistic approach to design proactively prioritizes what communities most desire and need from the design process. Community technology and consentful technology are key conceptual prisms through which organizers are re-envisioning technology to support movement values. As movement work increasingly relies on digital organizing, relationship building remains more critical than any tech tool. The Community Technology Network gathering at the Allied Media Conference created guiding principles of community technology, which include access empowerment, privacy, ownership, resource sharing, and collective expression. Relatedly, the concept of consentful technology developed by Allied Media centers consent as a core value of empowering communities to access technology. Organizers emphasize strengthening community self-determination and accessing digital technologies by teaching community members how to protect themselves and their data. In this way, movement organizations help community members navigate their complex relationships with tech, both to reduce the harms of surveillance and to use tech for grassroots organizing and liberation. Organizers are finding ways to adapt their digital organizing strategies to align with their values, ancestral knowledge, and traditional methods of convening people. For organizations whose approach hinges on digital organizing, the efficacy of their work continues to rely heavily on building interpersonal relationships in and across digital and physical spaces. A technologist, advocate, and educator described this challenge, quote, Our work as online organizers and our big movement contribution is about figuring out how to create feelings of belonging at scale in ways that are honest and real. Quote, I think one of the things that's very challenging about being a smaller organization building software to solve complex problems is that it's hard to resource. From a funding perspective, funders only want the sexy part, which is building software, and not the organizing part. It takes a lot to bring grassroots partners along on a process of developing and rolling out technology. Using these principles of design justice and community technology, 
communities are developing alternative technologies and solidarity platforms grounded in their politics. Corporate infrastructure can expose organizers and community members to state surveillance, as many of these platforms permit government agencies and police to monitor social movements. In response, organizers are developing their own technologies that allow them to control their data and the security protocols needed to protect it. To that end, some technologists are building community-owned infrastructure to provide internet service to their communities. By installing high-speed internet antennas that share gigabit connections with people's home computers and building their own local wireless mesh networks, they are able to cut out the corporate middlemen. In Detroit, the Equitable Internet Initiative, EII, a collaboration between Allied Media Projects and the Detroit Community Technology Project, DCTP, is building community wireless networks and bringing digital education and empowerment to a city where 40% of residents don't have access to the internet. Their solar-powered infrastructure can withstand flooding, storms, and utility shutoffs. Free open Wi-Fi networks also help with emergency response, like when Superstorm Sandy destroyed the power grid in Red Hook, Brooklyn. Despite the loss of cell service, residents and responders were able to communicate through their community Wi-Fi network. DCTP consists of community technologists, those with a desire to design, build, and facilitate a healthy integration of technology into people's lives and communities, allowing them the fundamental human right to communicate. DCTP works to demystify technology and expand digital literacy in their communities through community technology programs. Through the EII, they support historically marginalized residents to build and maintain neighborhood-governed internet infrastructure that fosters accessibility, consent, safety, and resilience. EII trains residents as digital stewards and works to strengthen neighborhoods through community organizing, participation, collaboration, and resilient infrastructure. In a context of colonialism and climate disasters, building community resilience is critical for building power and movements. Puerto Rico-based nonprofit La Maraña illustrates the power of design justice through its community participatory recovery model. Quote, in the aftermath of Hurricanes Irma and Maria in 2017, the failed government response sparked a collective movement of community-based initiatives that have come to the forefront of their community's justice-based recovery. Its Imagination Post-Maria Initiative combines microfinancing, capacity building, participatory budgeting, and design programs such as Illustrator, GIS, and AutoCAD to conduct mapping and planning for community-driven infrastructure projects. La Maraña has deep respect for local communities' relationship to the land, and the organization supports reclamation efforts as a central part of its methodology. La Maraña begins each of its community maps by collecting oral histories, which are a powerful mapping tool when climate disaster has rendered the landscape of a neighborhood unrecognizable. 
This practice also records community members' desires for infrastructural changes. In this sense, Lamaranya fashions a portal of possibility for a just future. One organizer described this process, quote, I tend to speak about the work that we're doing in communities as a way of going into a bubble. Sometimes I feel so overwhelmed by what's happening in Puerto Rico that when I go to the communities, I feel like we're living in a parallel universe where we can dream, we can construct, and we can think of alternate lives. For organizers in Puerto Rico, community-driven infrastructure, including technology, is vital to adjust an ongoing decolonization from U.S. imperialism, imposed economic austerity, and disaster capitalism. Community Technology Project Resilient Just Technologies, RJT, creates DIY Wi-Fi networks for emergency response and recovery. Leveraging existing media and decentralized technologies for immediate use by organizers in the racial, economic, and climate justice movements. RJT has collaborated with Community Tech New York to adapt their standalone communications platform called Portable Network Kits, PNKs. PNKs are mobile, affordable, and secure, with resiliency features, including solar panels and battery packs, that make them useful when power grids are down. They work with the internet, and function as local network without the internet, which allows people to stay connected during and after climate disasters. RJT has also been working with healing just practitioners and mutual aid centers to promote communications justice as central to our decolonization efforts. Community-owned infrastructure is a powerful way that indigenous communities exercise sovereignty. Native tribes receive less than 1% of all FCC funding for broadband infrastructure support because they often do not meet funding criteria, which are based on a colonial internet model of a single carrier and individual subscribers. However, Native communities are creating their own infrastructure based on tribally-centric deployment models that promote education and connectivity through community technology centers and libraries. The Indigenous Connectivity Summit emphasizes that infrastructure initiatives for Native communities must prioritize community-owned networks, sustainability, cultural preservation, respect for tribal lands, community health, and capacity building. During demonstrations at Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline, water protectors at Oseti Sakoan built an open-source mesh network to allow activists and journalists to report what was happening in the camp. This helped galvanize an international solidarity movement in support of defending land and lives from extractive industries, even as private security firm Tiger Swan launched cyber attacks on activists and broke into fiber cable boxes on Standing Rock Sioux Tribe land. Other organizations forging solidarity platforms are May 1st Movement Technology, a nonprofit cooperative of movement organizations and activists across the U.S. and Mexico that has created a solidarity platform that hosts over 10,000 email addresses and over 2,000 websites on collectively owned encrypted hardware. 
Palant Technology Cooperative provides social justice-informed tech support, including data management and digital security, to movement organizations looking to use technology to advance their work. Rise Up is an autonomous tech collective that runs secure online communications tools, including its own email, chat servers, and VPN. VoterVox, a project of 18millionrising.org, is a translation app that breaks down language barriers preventing limited English-proficient Asian American and Pacific Islander voters from participating in elections. Quote, We can't create a magical policy to fix this. We can't create one research project that's going to unveil the entire thing. It's going to be a constant process where we have to be thinking about how to change the narrative and build power. And that can only happen with movement in communities that are directly impacted, involved, and in the mix. And so funding has to be reflective. Movement technology is a resource-intensive investment because it is created by and for communities with a participatory design process that guarantees its accessibility and usefulness of the technology. Developing movement technology is critical for transforming the surveillance culture. Developing solidarity platforms and tech tools for the movement work is usually cost prohibitive for small nonprofit organizations operating with limited budgets. Building platforms that aren't just functional but also user friendly is essential to moving from mainstream platforms to secure digital spaces. Creating successful movement technology requires long term investment and support. Data defense and stewardship. Organizers are creating healthier digital ecosystems that center data sovereignty and community-based training around digital security. The mainstream use of social media and search engine platforms is linked to increased surveillance. However, these same tools are necessary for effective organizing and community mobilization. Because of the security risks posed by mainstream platforms, QT2S BIPOC organizers are increasingly switching to open source platforms that use end-to-end -end encryption. When they adopt encrypted technology, they shift the balance of power in the digital ecosystem because their data can no longer be captured and weaponized against them via social media intelligence. But even those platforms marked as progressive aren't always safe. The culture and economy of tech development continues to exclude QT2S BIPOC communities from the design process, resulting in products that may negatively impact these communities. Holistic approaches to community capacity building, education, and training around digital security are imperative to the larger abolitionist vision of social change and the fight against criminalization. Most mainstream digital security resources and trainings focus on the security of an individual, which means they often fail to address systemic and community issues. Many grassroots organizations don't have IT staff or funding to update devices, which increases vulnerability to security breaches. 
For this reason, trainers adapt their approach to improving digital security protocol so it can be seamlessly integrated into an organization's existing infrastructure without placing burdensome and inaccessible demands on staff. Holistic safety addresses the technical risks that organizations encounter and equally as important, the somatic trauma that organizers and community members experience due to digital attacks and surveillance. Radical QT2SBIPOC Digital Security, Digisec, and Information Security, Infosec, trainers are bringing principles of holistic safety into their work, centering community safety, well-being, and contextual responses to meet the security needs of these organizations. In Hacking Hustling's inaugural sex worker-led event in response to FOSTA-SESTA, they partnered with T4 Tech, a trans and sex worker-led organization, to lead the digital security trainings. Community members reported the importance of having trainers from their community lead the workshops and attributed it to why these trainings were more effective than previous efforts led by outside experts. Organizers are designing tools and trainings for data defense and stewardship in response to how government agencies, tech companies, and corporations collect and weaponize data. Organizations like the Data Justice Program are actively fighting to end the conflation between surveillance, security, and safety. They have been intricately involved in equitable census organizing and resistance to facial recognition and mass surveillance. Through the Our Data Bodies ODB research, they determine that organizations who innovate from a security or surveillance mindset make already marginalized community members less safe. The program reshapes narratives and nurtures the existence of a more equitable and just future online and offline. The ODB project takes a holistic view on creating healthy digital ecosystems based on the principles of digital justice. Access, participation, common ownership, and healthy communities. Its recently created Digital Defense Playbook is a participatory training model that engages community members in learning about their data bodies, the ways their personal information is digitally collected, stored, and shared to surveil and criminalize them. This work helps community members gain a more embodied understanding of the hidden flow of personal data between government and private agencies. One exercise, What's in Your Wallet?, asks participants to examine the contents of their wallets, ID, credit cards, public benefits cards, etc., and map the types of personal information that data-driven systems collect from them every day. They then learn how this data may be used to deny them access to public assistance, housing, employment, and other basic resources. ODB frames this analysis around how data-driven systems and technologies impede self-determination and chances for advancement in QT2S BIPOC communities. Participants are equipped to identify points of vulnerability and become informed stewards of their own data. Organizations are fortifying their data sovereignty by conducting their own research, data collection, and data analysis for social justice in addition to data stewardship. 
indigenous feminist organizers are making critical connections between the importance of data ownership, land sovereignty, and gender justice with the MMIWG T2S, Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, Trans and Two-Spirit People campaign. After noticing official state reports grossly ignored or misrepresented the level of gender and sexual violence against Native communities, the Sovereign Bodies Institute, SBI, created its own comprehensive MMIWGT2S database to honor the Indigenous women, girls, trans, and two-spirit people who have gone missing or been murdered. Researchers from SBI centered indigenous methodologies in gathering data about the identities of those in the database, including information left out of state reporting about whether these individuals ever returned to their tribal communities, received a traditional burial ceremony, or were targeted as sex workers. The database serves as a resource for activists and advocates to seek justice for their stolen siblings. SBI has also collaborated with Three Sisters Collective, a feminist Pueblo organization in New Mexico, to hold intergenerational community organizing events. Gatherings like the ones held by SBI and Three Sisters Collective integrate data sovereignty with personal and collective healing. Healing as an Abolitionist Technology Quote, Healing justice is part of our abolition work. It is to equip folks with the memory of healing in us so that we don't call the police to address the situation, but rather we take care of ourselves and each other. We're not turning to the violent state. We're actually resolving it ourselves. A lot of our work is intentionally to build the alternative as we're trying to shut down or dismantle these systems. We'll be much more powerful when we notice how much state violence impacts us and we're able to end it within ourselves. Because if we're well and we stop harming each other, I don't see what else could stop us. Building movements that are powerful and sustainable enough to dismantle systems of oppression necessitates healing the personal collective and generational trauma that these systems cause. In our previous report, Healing Justice, Building Power, Transforming Movements, we're excited to show how QT2S BIPOC organizers have long known and developed practices to support healing and resiliency as part of building community power, a framework known as Healing Justice. Having become deeply skilled in conflict resolution, community accountability methods, and transformative justice, which seeks solutions that do not use punishment, incarceration, or policing. Movement organizations are creating interdependent networks of care within their communities as alternatives to reliance on the state. These organizations support addressing harm and resolving conflict without involving the systems that enact violence upon QT2S BIPOC communities. These care networks provide communities with resources to develop their own protective practices from a place of healing the harms of internalized state violence. These holistic approaches integrate abolition, healing justice, and holistic safety into their organizing strategies. For example, Dignity and Power Now 
DPN, supports, quote, communities most impacted by mass incarceration and state violence with tools to interrupt, respond, and mitigate the harms of violence by law enforcement agencies. They coordinate a rapid response network of organizers who act as healing justice first responders following an act of police brutality and who serve as listeners, police de-escalators, street medics, and healers. To transform systems of oppression, DPN believes in resourcing individual and collective healing and resilience with healing modalities that will, quote, help lessen dependency on the state to respond to crisis in communities. More organizations are centering healing justice in their rapid response to digital and physical attacks, including working with movement funders to resource time for frontline organizers to recover from the toll of these attacks so they can take care of themselves, prevent burnout, and continue to stay engaged in movement building. Healing justice is a strategy that strengthens communities and intentional and direct counterbalance to the ways in which tech surveillance and mass criminalization disaggregate and disrupt organizational power. Quote, People need resources to heal from emotional, psychological, and physical harm in order to keep doing the work. Our movement work as LGBTQI activists of color is made stronger when we lose fewer people. Community-based healing justice circles are another way in which organizers work towards abolition. Healing circles seek to heal generational trauma. They honor the ancestors whose work was the foundation of the current resistance movements. These healing justice circles carry forward and draw upon indigenous practices of ceremony and medicine to foster healthy, sustainable movements for decades to come. Southerners on New Ground, SONG, an LGBTQI liberation organization fostering a multi-issue justice movement in the South, hosts intergenerational circles where members listen together to audio recordings of SONG's founders sharing stories about the organization's early resistance work, such as fighting the Ku Klux Klan in the 1990s. This cross-generational passing of stories preserves Song's history and connects members across different eras of movement building to strengthen Song's base as it faces new and ongoing threats from surveillance technology. Conclusion In this report, we explore the way that policing and criminalization are themselves technologies deeply rooted in white supremacy and how the high-tech interventions that are being deployed to police and surveil QT2S BIPOC communities are merely new extensions of the prison industrial complex that expand the control of the state. The stories shared in this report uplift the experiences of movement organizers and map often invisible and hidden processes of criminalization as they intersect with technologies of surveillance. We highlight the resilience and ingenuity of communities fighting back against carceral tech as they build networks of care and protection while simultaneously dexterously navigating and adapting to the rapid development of new carceral technologies. 
We outline key elements of these oppressive regimes, particularly as they impact communities of color and other groups oppressed by the U.S. neoliberal, white, capitalist, patriarchal, heteronormative system. Movement organizers continue to show the power of movement technology when developed by and for community. Moreover, their visions, values, and programming provide clear pathways forward in the struggle for justice in an increasingly digital world. With their lead, we conclude this report with a renewed call for long-term responsive funding initiatives that support organizations addressing the root causes of systemic inequality, challenge dominant narratives of criminalization and surveillance, and ultimately echo and affirm abolitionist organizing and self-determination. And circling back now to the introduction to this report, there are recommendations for funders. Few funders address these issues head on. Social justice funders are working to deepen their understanding of technology's harms and possibilities. Technology funders may not bring social justice or anti-criminalization lens. The complexity of how lives are mediated by criminalizing technologies calls for an interdisciplinary approach to funding and requires all funders to stretch beyond our philanthropic silos, think holistically, and find creative ways to deepen support for the organizations building the transformative futures we need. Ending the criminalization of QT2SBIPOC communities requires dismantling the state's architecture of surveillance and the systems upon which it depends, from policing to prisons to immigration enforcement. Movement organizations are organizing in and with their communities to keep people safe and meet the needs of the community. Increase core support to organizations working to abolish or ban technologies used to criminalize and police communities with military equipment and tactics. When making a grant, some helpful questions to guide your grant-making decisions include, does this grant challenge the existence of criminalizing systems? Does this grant reject surveillance technology as a way to ameliorate the violence of a criminalizing system? Does this grant promote community-based narratives of safety? Does this grant aim to curtail expansion of the state's network of surveillance? Does this grant support efforts to divest in structures of criminalization and reinvest those resources into community-centered projects for safety and well-being? Does this grant uphold abolitionist steps in policing to promote community safety, or does it default to reformist reforms? Does this grant prioritize holistic safety as a framework that emphasizes sustainability and centers community-based safety and well-being? Invest in organizations with multi-year sustained funding. Ending the surveillance and criminalization of communities will not happen overnight. Organizations need flexible funding that enables communities to sustain resistance and build alternatives. Listen to and follow how organizations define and measure impact. Expand how you measure impact. Activists need flexibility around what counts as a concrete win. 
Their definitions of wins also often include building the knowledge, resilience, and power of directly impacted communities. Activists are organizing under constantly evolving and developing levels of surveillance and criminalization. Funding streams need to be flexible to keep up with the rate of new technologies and means of surveillance. This paradigm-shifting work takes time and requires many steps. Fund Healing Justice Healing builds individual and collective power and resilience. Invest in collective care, wellness, and healing justice strategies. The trauma experienced by people who have been criminalized must be addressed to build lasting community power. Center the knowledge and vision of frontline movement organizers. Movement organizers are the experts of their experiences and know better than anyone what they need to sustain their work. Ask grantee partners directly about their needs around holistic safety and movement technology, then work to meet them. Respect and support collective community-based reparations work that doesn't lead to further criminalization. Learn from global movements and Global South organizations that have deep expertise in organizing under oppressive regimes and deploying community-based technology in response to state surveillance. Invest in political education and career pipelines for community-based technologists. Movement organizations, organizers, and technologists play an important role in helping community members navigate their relationship to technology, both to reduce the structures and harms of surveillance and to utilize the technology for grassroots organizing. Fund ongoing political education for activists, funders, technologists, and policymakers around issues of privacy, safety, and security. These issues are complex, constantly changing, and often hidden and inscrutable. Everyone, especially the communities most impacted by criminalization, needs to understand the impact of technology and criminalization on individual lives and on whole communities. Invest in movement-based community research that deepens understanding of the role of surveillance technologies and builds communities' capacity to resist them. Build and broaden the long-term technology capacity of movements, investing in people. Fund community-centered technology professional development and mentorship for people within communities and organizations to train to become technologists for their communities and organizations. One-off digital security training does not get the job done. Having more community technologists supports organizational digital security and mitigates the risk of burnout for individual technologists. Fund the development, implementation, and long-term maintenance of movement technology. Grounded in self-determination, organizers are creating and adapting community-owned technology and infrastructure to respond to their community's needs. Provide dedicated funding for movement technology as part of larger organizing and sustainability strategies. Developing community-centered technology tools for movement work is resource-intensive but builds capacity for sustainable movement work. Sustain movement technology beyond the startup phase and norms of startup culture. 
Developing any technology to the point of usability and adoption is a long-term project that necessitates long-term funding beyond the startup phase. Long-term support is needed to support the engineering side of creating platforms and tools and the organizing side of working with community members to design, test, evaluate, and deploy. Funding needs to be fluid to reflect the rapidly evolving surveillance technologies and the relationships heavily policed communities have with them. Support grantee partners' technology needs. Organizations' needs include their efforts to shift from mainstream corporate platforms to more secure digital spaces and practices, operational technology, and technical innovations. Tighten your own safety protocols and policies to reduce risk to grantee partners, their allies, and their communities. Ensure that application forms are encrypted. Reconsider what data is collected and whether people are able to apply without revealing personally identifying information that might put them at risk or make communities most at risk of criminalization more hesitant to apply. Use holistic security practices across the funding landscape to decrease grantees' risks of being surveilled. Consider the safety and security of the technology and platforms used for grant applications and other interactions. Be sensitive to the particular surveillance risks that organizations and potential grantee partners may face. And finally, support interdisciplinary funding streams that transcend philanthropic silos. Funding needs to reflect the complexities of the ways that marginalized communities are policed and surveilled. This means that funding needs to come from technology, LGBTQI, and racial justice funders. And once again, that is the report published by Estrella Lesbian Foundation for Justice at estreafoundation.org called Technologies for Liberation Toward Abolitionist Futures. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. If you want to check out all the back episodes, you can go to youcan'tbeneutral.com. You can also listen to this and all my podcasts playing 24-7 at Moving Train Radio. Now, a moment of Zen. Thanks for listening. Vanzetti had in his pocket, uh, when he was on that streetcar in Brockton, the day he was arrested, and, uh, and what he had in his pocket was a leaflet advertising a meeting where he was going to speak. And the leaflet said, you have fought all the wars. You have worked for all the capitalists. You have wandered over all the countries. Have you harvested the fruits of your labors, the price of your victories? Does the past comfort you? Does the present smile on you? Does the future promise you anything? Have you found a piece of land where you can live like a human being and die like a human being? On these questions, on this argument, and on this theme, the struggle for existence, Bartolomeo Vanzetti will speak.
Well, of course, you never got, he never got to give that speech, but I thought, well, uh, that says it. You want, don't want to let somebody make a speech like that. Because if that speech were made often enough by enough people to enough people in, in a country uh, where, yes, where for so many of the people in the country that message resonates, uh, well, you might have some resounding movement for social change in the country. So, uh, that was behind the, the case of Sacco and Vanzetti, and that is behind the case of Mumia Abu Jamal, and that's the, behind uh, so much of what goes on in our society and so much of you know, what is called the justice system. And so I think it's, it's important, especially in a law school where it is so easily to, to become sort of, uh, I almost said besmirched, uh, it's so easy to become befogged, you know, with uh, the niceties of law to uh, remember that behind the law and above the law, behind the law, you know, there are very, very powerful uh, issues of, of class and race and, and gender and social conflict. And, uh, and if we want justice, we are going to have to engage in some way, uh, engage ourselves in some way. Uh, in that conflict. Thank you.